0: Was changing strings and the string broke, and I was right over top of the hole of the guitar, and the string came up and sliced my face. He said, Never put your face over the top of the guitar when you're changing strings. Never do it.
1: another episode of holy fuck it's a music podcast our guest today is a canadian national treasure uh jay semko is probably best known for his tenure in the northern pikes who during the mid to late 80s and early 90s were one of the quintessentially canadian acts defining a generation of canadian music jay is also a prolific solo artist mentor for songwriters of all ages radio dj composer and one of my very favorite songwriters so i'm really excited to welcome him to the show hi jay
2: hey
3: kev
0: how are you doing great to see you Hey Randy! Oh no, I was just
2: gonna say, good to see you, Jay. Yeah, I like that. It's good. Yeah, I'm all shaved up. (laughs) All shaved up, Jay.
1: So, Jay, where did you? Are you a Saskatchewan boy? Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in Saskatchewan. Yes, I was born here in Saskatoon at Saskatoon City Hospital, and uh, I lived here, I guess, until I was in grade one. Partly through grade one, so I was six years old, and then we moved out to. Uh, a farm outside of Saskatoon and not that far away, like, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 kilometers outside of the city. Although it seemed like a long ways away as a kid, my dad, my mom and dad moved out to the farm and they had a house moved. And I, this is interesting because I, you know, I I didn't know how, how you could move a house. They had a house that had been apparently on Clarence Avenue. That was like a really old house and they moved it, but they had this farm out there too, which is called JPD farms. So they farmed, I think they had alfalfa and sweet the reason we ended up moving back into the city though the reason that I'm aware of anyway was that the, the barn burned down there was a big fire a few months after that we we moved back into Saskatoon which was not necessarily a bad thing and in fact a good thing for me I was happy to do that at the time I was you know ready to uh ready for the uh, a little more of the world I guess at that point by the time I moved yeah. in but but you know with music I mean the, my first exposure to music I guess was uh, my grandpa and grandma Semko they both were musicians it's my dad's mom and dad and they were both my grandpa had come from directly from the Ukraine as a child and my grandmother was born shortly after her parents had immigrated to Saskatchewan from the Ukraine and they were both they both played music the, my grandpa played the violin and he was good, and he would make violins and fix them and repair them as well. And my uh, oh, my cool. granny would play the piano and the guitar, and uh, yeah. So I, you know, I remember, kid, sort of jamming with them, and they had a, oh, my, my grandpa Senko had a had a reel-to-reel tape recorder too, and he recorded stuff, you know. And I, they had a little bongo drum, and I jam along with them, and yeah, it was kind of fun. So I, I think that was kind of my first exposure, and then when I. Went to school, and I went to Clavette School. That was the name of the school I went to. There was a uh, a piano teacher there, and I took lessons from her for a couple of years. Although I was never very good at it, I found it very frustrating, you know, to try and connect notes. I couldn't read notes well and connect that to to what I was yeah. hearing. Even though my I could pick up by ear really quickly, and I could learn songs and remember remember them quickly in terms of the, you know, just by noodling around on the piano, I could find the melodies and all that kind of thing. But uh, John, John and Diane Watts, I think were their names. And anyway, my folks went on a trip, so they came and looked after us for a week and they brought all their records. And they had records like the Turtles and the Rolling Stones, you know, their first greatest album, yeah. which was High Tides and Green Grass and, and Beatles records. And, you know, and yeah, it sort of really kind of expanded my musical mind. And then when I moved into the city, that was a whole other ball game because all of a sudden you're around a lot more other kids that were maybe a little more exposed to uh, to music, and uh, so I took lessons from this guy, and uh, and he was great because what he taught was chords. and My dad had a guitar. I got to say that. To my dad had a had a guitar, and he had a book like a music book, and he would he would learn s- simple songs out there like Red River Valley and you know when the Saints go marching in, which is kind of you know, yeah. you're just doing chords and strumming. Just standards. Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. So, so I kind of noodled around on that a little bit. And then uh, when I took the lessons from the guy at the Y, it was great because the very first lesson I sat down there with him and he kind of, he, he, and he had a scar on his face, like on his cheek, like, this, like, a, <laughs> like a gangster scar or something like this. And and, uh, and he says, you see this? He's real serious. but like, see this? He says, you know, I got this. And I go, I don't know. I was like a little kid, 10 years old. <laughs> He's like, I was changing strings. And the string broke. And I was right over top of the hole of the guitar. And the string came up and sliced my face. He said, You'll never put your face over the top of the guitar when you're changing strings. Never do it. The- oh, <laughs> It's that time, for God's sake, you know, it's like, I, I'm paranoid, I change strings and I, I whenever I start getting a oh, no, sit back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: to, talking to other people and, and when I talk to musicians, I enjoy asking them about, I remember very distinctly the first sort of bands that grabbed me. The first ones were, that's for me, that, you know, the first time I heard, I put on side one of Led Zeppelin 4 and the, the very opening of Black Dog, but yeah, this is, this is my music. I don't want to listen to Rod Stewart. I don't want to listen to, you know, my mum's stuff, but that, that's my music. Do you remember sort of any of those pivotal moments with any any bands or specific artists that really sort of grabbed you and and, and have held you since? Yes,
0: I do remember that. And I think one of the one, one of the records, and it was interesting because my folks, my dad bought my mum a couple of records. And one was, and it was kind of a greatest hits album. It was a Beatles album, and it had Hey Jude and Revolution and Paperback Writer and... Rain, and you know what was interesting though is we had a big old console type stereo, and these if I don't know if you recall these things, they were huge pieces of furniture, these big yeah, things, yeah, and you flip up the top, and there was a turntable and the radio part inside, etc. I think the later ones had eight tracks in them too, eight track players. Yeah. But
2: <laughs>
0: I had this. Uh, so my mom had this record, this. uh with these Beatles songs on it. The one thing I didn't realize till many years later, was that only one side of the the stereo worked. So there was...
1: Oh, one channel? So
0: some of these Beatles songs, it was really hilarious when I heard them years later. the other album that they have was Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. and I found that cover so fascinating. I was just looking at a cover for hours and
3: picking yep. up
0: the people and, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. But the... Uh, <laughs> this is a song rain i always thought the song rain from the beatles was an instrumental because i'd never heard the singing <laughs> yeah. and you know the first time you know i heard i heard the uh, the vocals in it i was like what version is this holy shit what is <laughs> I it i was amazed oh somebody put words to the song and then I realized no, you've been listening. You grew up listening to one channel of your, you know. Oh, yeah. So, but yeah, no, those, those were two albums. I guess another the first albums that I guess I bought, kind of with my own money, the first few that I recall was Kenny Rogers in the first edition, and it was something oh, yeah. was the album. I think it was the name of the album. It had the song "Something's Burning," which I love. And uh, oh, the other album I bought that was. I think at the same time, and I had saved up, you know, from whatever I was doing, cutting the grass or something, and I, and I bought Bill, <laughs> the best of Bill Cosby as well.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Stella.
2: Yeah. Danny Rogers,
0: Bill Cosby, and the Creedence Clearwater Revival, Bayou Country. And that was a big one. I just played the shit out of that. I loved Bayou Country. It was just yep. like that. that. So that that probably, that one, and then after that, I remember I got Share the Land, The <laughs> guess who? here. So, yeah, yeah. You know, those, were, those were early influences. Plus the music that your folks play at home. You know, my folks used to play records. So, you know, my mom was a big fan of Joan Baez. And uh, they, they kind of like that Greenwich Village folk music to a certain extent. You know, like, so it's interesting. Yeah. I saw the movie A Mighty Wind. I, I immediately got all that stuff right away. A trio called The Limelighters. Dad had the limelighters
1: live.
0: It was great because they told jokes. Peter, Paul, and Mary live. You know, once again they're live and they tell jokes, and you sort of get the the vibe of the whole the whole thing. And they, you know, it was an interesting time. You know, because in the early seventies, which was when we moved into the city and when I really started getting involved in music, and I, I did start. I wanted to play in a band really bad. Oh, and I must say, in my last year that I was out at uh, the farm there was a hired hand that would come and work at the harvest with uh you know with my grandpa and my dad and my uncle and uh, and he had an electric guitar and an amplifier and it was a raven electric with a curly cord into the symphonic amp and uh anyway i was fascinated by this and he he wanted to sell it so for my birthday my folks bought it for me and uh so and I was amazed with it. And I still have the amp, although it's really an electrical hazard. It needs to be repaired. Oh. <laughs> I plugged it in not that long ago, and I went to play it. And it was like, you could feel the current going through. Like,
2: <laughs> How old were you then when you first started playing guitar? I think I was
0: 10. 10 and then turning eleven. But when I turning cores was turning chords when I actually took, you know, with the electric guitar, I just kind of made noise on it, you know. And uh, yeah, and to be honest, it wasn't the world's you know greatest technical guitar or anything. It was really it was hard to get in tune and things yeah. like that, you know. But it made a sound that was neat through a, a little amp and stuff like that. So but when he moved into the city, and and I wanted to learn guitar better, so I started going to Gordy Brandt's Music. We took lessons there yep. with a buddy of mine, John Bailey. Lessons as a duo. Remember the first teacher that we had there? He was a classical guitarist. And he was really good and he was this is about 72 1971 or 72 yeah <laughs> and this guy he was a, a real like a real hippie first generate when they were real like real hippies and he had hair like it was waist and he was great on the classical and he sort of trying to teach us songs my friend john and i and we'd sort of be fascinated he'd go you want to hear some music and we go yeah and then he just played for the last <laughs> 15 minutes of the lesson it was really good. And I remember he was going to move to Spain because he was convinced that if you got a really good classical guitar from Spain and if you took it out of there, it would be ruined because the the climate was different, etc. So in order for him to get the guitar that he ultimately wanted, he was going to literally immigrate to Spain for this guitar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is
1: bringing the mountain to Muhammad. <laughs>
3: guy was
0: seriously committed man it's like saying <laughs> it's like moving for a girl or moving for you know somebody yeah. uh, that you're in love with you know, to, yeah. you know to uh and then i wanted to learn the bass because i realized you know being moving into the city and there were a lot more kids around etc and there were lots of guys that were really good guitar players it seemed like but there weren't hardly any bass players i wanted to be in a band and you know, this is pre pre white stripes <laughs> era, yeah. <laughs> yeah. black era. So you, every band had to have a bass player. So, and there was also there was a kid named Mark Wolf, and he was a guitarist, and he lived a few doors down from the Brants. And then another guy, two doors down the other side, Jimmy Walker, and Jim played the drums. And they were both really good. J- Mark was a really good guitar player. He was a small little guy at that time. He grew up to be a, a you know, a tall man eventually, but at that time he was pretty small. and The guitar was so big on him. He was just like this,
3: <laughs> little guy, you
0: know, playing the guitar. But Jim was a really good drummer too. And he was a great rock and roll drummer, but he also played in the pipe and drums band. So yeah. So those are the guys I got to jam with, you know, as a little kid, you know, and uh, it was, it was a good education. And I mean, you know, you, I think you sometimes, you know, rise up to the people that you're playing with. And those guys were both pretty good musicians for their age anyway, you know, and, uh, and I ended up being lucky enough, being the right place, right time to be around these guys. And so, so I ended up developing in conjunction with the lessons that I took and then a lot of practice. And I, I really, but I, I never looked at it as work. I just really, I love doing it. I love digging into the music, learning songs. I, you know, I would get records and yeah. obviously pre, pre-CD era, so it was vinyl, so I mean, I got really good at li- getting the needle on the exact spot, you know, to learn certain yeah. parts over and over again, you gotta lift it up, play it again, play it again, and so I learned tons of, you know, Beatles and Rolling Stones and David Bowie and the Guess Who and and all the did bands you, of the time.
2: Did you, know. you sing? Did you sing in those days, Jay, in those early... <laughs> no, nope,
0: nope, I didn't sing. I, I never thought of myself ever as a singer and I had no
2: intention of being a singer. I just so when did that when did that come about for you then when you decided that hey man I can sing?
0: So it was you know when I really started to sing was kind of by default. I guess I got through the high school years and then uh and I guess about a year at a high school started I well I played in a few cover bands actually and I started singing more harmonies in these cover bands. One of them was called Strutter. We played uh you know, the places you would play would be like high school dances and in little towns, you know, all the little towns back in that time in the late seventies into, you know, well into probably even the late eighties, I think, were, uh, they would all have dances and they'd be like the town hall or the Elks hall. And, you know, every month or two, they'd have a dance. And so there was kind of a, a circuit for, for bands to go out and play and you could play at high schools. There was would not have a DJ. They would, it would be like live music, a live band playing. So by playing in the cover bands, I think, you know, you learn about songwriting, you learn about singing. And and basically because no one else was kind of doing it, I started singing some harmony things and learning how to do that. And I never really sang lead until, oh, I think, well, the first kind of serious band that got happening was a band called the Idols. And that was in 1979. And we were very influenced by, uh, by the punk new wave music. that was coming out of Britain and they had a show, the BBC and they play a bunch of, uh, you know, whatever was hot in Britain at the time. And hearing this music and, and loving it, you know, hearing stuff like, you know, well, they talked about the Sex Pistols, but they wouldn't play it, I remember.
1: They didn't play it on. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't play it a lot of places in Britain either. They got banned from lots of radio stations.
0: Yeah, and I remember seeing a clip
1: on the news,
0: and they were talking on a horrifying thing. You know, it was the great for a teenager you know, <laughs> to love that. Like a horrifying young punks. You know, they them in a. You know, <laughs> reported. Yeah. You know, sort of like pretending to puke on old people and stuff like that. And I. <laughs> Oh, I like that. I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> I like these guys. This is kind of, you know, and they, they just had spiky hair, and it was really different. I, I, I got off on the energy of it, and I. Oh yeah, I' the other those groups? You know, I guess I always liked a little more of the pop pop side of things, and I loved Elvis Costello and the Attractions, and I mean, and we started in the summer of '79, the Idols, and there was myself and uh, a drummer named Colin Sander, and I played bass. And we had Mark Wolf, my childhood friend, guitar player. He was the original guitar player in the Idols, and uh, and Merle Brick, who ended up, you know, being one of the guys in the Northern Pikes. And that was the original version of the Idols. And we would go out. We had we bought these suits at the Army and Navy Department Store. They were sort of a lime green <laughs> double breasted suit. They were really, fairly ugly, but they were quite striking in their own <laughs> weird way. Also, and they were cheap. And so we got four of these, and we also got these four red jumpsuits. And uh, they were kind of like a flight suit or something. for <laughs> fixing your car or something. And so we would have our little costumes. And our other shtick that we did on stage is we had, if you remember from the Flintstones, they, had, uh, they used to have these punching bags that for kids. And they were weighted. They were inflatable. You blow them up, and they had sort of yeah. a thing on the bottom, so you could punch yeah. them, and bounce back up all the time. And they, they were Fred Flintstone, they had his his face and body on there. And when I remember when we would play the song "Pump It Up," we played "Pump It Up" by Elvis Costello, and, and then we throw these things out and punch them around.
1: <laughs> but, you know, it was what well, that's we, funny, Jake. Because I mean and i grew up i grew up with a, a, listening to either first hand or second hand a lot of those british bands oh. the jam elvis costello especially squeeze oh, okay. and i see that 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 makes sense to me because they're very clever bands lyrically like you know they're not just writing it's not just i met this girl on a sunday like they, they write really interesting lyrics mm-hmm. and so do you think does that play into your songwriting style do, do you feel those influences coming forward I think so. They they set kind of a high bar there, you know. I mean,
0: but hey, having yeah. said that, I mean, I love to hear. You know, I want to be your girlfriend from the Ramones too. You know, which was pretty pretty big yeah. lyrically. But, well, but yeah, Louis. I mean, Louis, I mean Louis,
1: Louis Louis is still one of the best songs I've ever written, and it's yeah, you know yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, people like Elvis Elvis Costello write such good lyrics. Just amazing, amazing songwriters. Oh.
0: You know, and Squeeze as well. And you know, I, I remember when we went to see Squeeze. Just blew me away when I saw you know, Glenn Tilbrook playing really complex guitar parts in complex songs, singing complex, you know, melodies. Yeah. You know, like Paul McCartney meets Elvis Costello melodies and you go, Whoa, this is like they he they blew me away. And they had Jules Holland playing keys at the time and he oh. was the front man. He sat kind of in yeah. front, and played the piano and he was kinda of like a carnival barker. And you go, uh Hey, how you doing on you know, he had this kind of real <laughs> fun kind of, thing and, uh, man, they were good. The drummer was, they were just a really good band. They just had a big yeah. influence and uh, that was a cr- kind of a crazy, fun trip. I remember when we got into, well, maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but uh, why not what the hell we got into <laughs> we got into Edmonton and it was with, uh, by then we had uh, my friend, Neil Morgan was in the band and uh, we'd, we'd gone through a bunch of different members, I guess before I tell you that, I should tell you how we changed members because what happened was our our guitar player Mark he ended up leaving the band because it was and I I got it because we were we were well liked the the idols developed a really good following in, in Saskatoon and Regina and eventually in other cities in other provinces in the west and uh, but we were pretty different and pretty weird for a lot of people and you know and this is pre Internet and. We had kind of short hair. We jumped around and bopped around and played a lot of unfamiliar music for people. We played some songs that people would know, but not many. And we were starting to try and do our own songs as well, even though they really weren't very good, but they were at least an effort at trying to write. And, yeah. and but you know, you'd, you'd play in Regina at the university or Saskatoon at the university, of U of S, and you'd go over great and people just loved it and freaked out, you know, for the band. But then you'd go into some of these little towns and Sometimes they liked you. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they just hated you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there were times, and I remember this was the specific incident. We were playing in a small town, and they just hated us. They absolutely hated us. And I remember right before <laughs> the right before the gig, the girl who had booked the thing was sort of sitting me. And she, you know, they they were very wary. They were pretty isolated this town. And I remember her saying, "So we heard that." There's a, this band that wears these green suits. That's really horrible. Like, you aren't that band. <laughs> well,
2: don't,
0: you know, you, you don't want to lose the gig, man. You want to make your, your the yeah. So, you know, we uh, so we didn't switch into the we didn't wear the suits, and they hated us anyway. The songs we hated. So by the last, I'll tell you, we were we were, we, you know, there was a rebellious streak in myself and Merle. Anyway, at that time, we were just sort of like. Oh, fuck these guys. We're, you, so, you think yeah. we're a, a, a punk yeah. band? Well, we'll give you a punk band then. <laughs> we did. We switched into our red jumpsuits and we played as, wow, as aggressively as we could. <laughs> we put all the. just just hated it. Oh my God, they hated it. And then one the guy came up, one guy came to the front of the stage and he grabbed Merle's because Merle was just singing. He wasn't playing guitar. He was jumping around. He was the lead singer. They grabbed his mic cable, and they formed a noose side of it. <laughs> he knew how to make a noose, which was
3: scary oh, enough. He knew
0: how to make a noose. Yeah. And so they made this... He held up this noose. Oh, and then we were done. I remember the girl comes up on the stage, and, and the people were just booing and throwing shit at us and stuff. And he was <laughs> right out of the... You know, it's like Blues Brothers without the chicken wire, you know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I remember, we went to leave, and uh, well, the girl came, The girl was supposed to, the, the book, the gate came up, and said, well, do you want to get paid? And I said, yeah. We've just been, like, verbally, abused <laughs> for about four hours. Yeah, we want to get paid. <laughs> okay. So, so she grudgingly paid us, and our loadout took about five minutes. I mean, we were just running people and you <laughs> know you know,
3: spraying
0: beer at you and stuff. Oh, my God. We just hurled the stuff in the van. Got in it. And as we're driving out, there's truckloads of, like, drunk redneck guys zooming up behind and throwing things. And oh, my God. It was like... So we got a few miles out of town. We kind of escaped with our, our skins intact. And uh, I remember Mark was sitting in the front seat. And... I can't remember if I was driving, but anyway, I think I think I was driving, and then Mark was sitting beside me there, our guitar player, and and I couldn't blame him. He just looked over and he said, you know, I had an offer to be in this other band. And you know, I, I want to be in a band that people like. <laughs> I still remember that quote it was great. I want to be in a band that people like.
1: It kind of reminds me of um, when uh, when Robert Downey Jr. did um, yeah. Iron Man, and when because obviously he you know he's kind of renowned for taking smaller roles and very artsy movies, this kind of thing. And they said, "Well, why did you take Iron Man?" He said, "I just I thought it would be wonderful to be in a movie that someone would see." <laughs> so, <was> kind of... <laughs> um, so Jay, so that was the idols. So I, I mean, as an immigrant, I didn't obviously I didn't grow up in Canada, so I didn't grow up with the Northern Pikes. Yeah. So can you tell me how? That band sort of came about, and how it coalesced, and and where you came from.
0: Okay, well, the Idols. I guess we went through a number of different changes, and uh, I guess our final version of the Idols was in 1982, and that was with Neil Morgan playing guitar, and Don Schmidt on the drums, and myself playing bass, and Merle Brick playing guitar and singing, because Merle was playing guitar and singing by then, not just a, a lead singer was. Merle and I. And by then Brian van, because I'd started playing with Brian in a couple of different bands, and he was a guitarist, and uh, and we decided let's let's get a new band going. Let's get the Northern the Northern Pikes out. And that became our name, and uh, yeah, we, we started the band up. We rehearsed like crazy, and talked to our to a, a local booking agent, Robert Hodgins, from Northwind Talent, and. Uh, Robert was a good friend, and, and he kind of got the idols. He had booked the idols. kind of got it. He knew what we were kind of about. And and the, with the Northern Pikes, I said, you know what? We're going to play cover songs. We want to work. We want to make money and make a living playing music. And we're, we are, our master plan is to be an original recording act, but we want to go out and play. And back then, you could play six nights a week in in clubs. So, and occasionally, you do a front three or a back three. But more often than not, you you would do Six Nights. So it was really good, a good way for a band to really develop themselves and become a, a better band. And I started singing more songs. I, I guess I was singing some stuff in the Idols before that. But I started singing more with the Northern Pikes. And then the, there was Glenn Hollingshead on the bass. And uh, we went through a lot of different drummers. Glenn ended up leaving the band, although he did play on the first EP. In, in, I guess it was in the late spring of 84 after we'd been out playing for about four months so we, re- we got the money together and uh, we recorded our first ep and we did it and our buddy was a guy that was one of my friends since grade nine a guy named mitch barnett and he was a recording engineer and he worked at a recording studio just outside of saskatoon called studio west the the, the meat of the recording that we ended up doing was with mitch And Mitch was, you know, and he was good, and he loved rock music. He was such a music fan, and still is, and he's still a good buddy. He lives out in the West Coast now. But anyway, we did this EP. It was just called The Northern Pikes, and it had six songs on it. It We did it on vinyl, and we ended up mailing it out to uh, college and indie radio stations across Canada and the U.S. Our first wave was across Canada, and we put the EP out, not really knowing what to expect, but we mailed it out with a little promo thing. And Robert Hodges had a great idea, and he he said, "I'm going to send it. I want you guys to send a card, this little with a uh, addressed card that, that all they have to do is fill it out and say if they're playing it or if they like it or if they're not playing it, and they'll send the information back." Which was really smart because I, I never even thought of that. And uh, we sent the stuff out, and lo and behold, within a few months, we started getting these cards back and sometimes letters back and there were charts in there. I mean, we were charting and we it, <laughs> the first EP it charted at like number one on many, many stations in Canada and the United States. And I, I think part of the reason was we were pretty different at the time. There was guitar kind of music at a time, you know, in, in late 84, 85 when keyboard music was pretty popular. So we just kept playing and playing. And then uh, we started incorporating more of our original music, into our into our sets. <laughs> so the more originals came in, the less gigs happened. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know. Although having said that, there was always a thing, and I gotta mention this, there was always a thing in Saskatoon called the Alternative Music Society. And they would put on these, these concerts. And often I was in a band called Listen with Neil Morgan and Dave Abbott. It was a three-piece band, kind of prior, sort of in, around the Idols or just after, you know, the Idols. And Brian Potvin, Brian was also in a group called uh, Doris Day with Johnny Sinclair. And There were some cool alternative groups that were just focusing on their original music, but they didn't play that often because it just wasn't the demand for that. But yeah. Alternative Music Society, we put in these shows, so we ended up opening for some cool bands along the way and, uh, and got to see a lot of these cool concerts. I mean, some of the, well, oh, here's, a, here's a gig that <laughs> was amazing. I remember seeing the band Simple Minds in Martinsville the town of Martins. What? Uh, at, no way. At the Elks Hall in Martinsville. Simple Minds. Wow. Mines. They made a venue for them. in Saskatoon. So they played at like the Elks Hall. It was like this. And I, I remember driving out or getting a ride out or somehow getting out there and watching them play. And they were cool. They were a cool band. I mean, they had, they definitely had it together in terms of their, their sound. And this was, I think, with their second record had come out, actually. And I remember the guitar player was really cool. He used effects really well, and I, I think Brian sort of was pretty fascinated by him. And but anyway, what what that yeah. did exposed you to different music and and gave you, instead of just being exposed to the world of, of bars and 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 playing covers, there there was another side of of, of rock music that you could see where there were uh, alternative music bands playing different things, and not that they were all super great, but I mean I remember I think we opened for DOA. That was another gig that we opened
2: for, and. Uh, after you sent all those albums out, did that did that end up helping getting you guys signed? Is that what kind of, you know, led Warner Brothers to start? It was, or not, was it Warner? Who was it that will start knocking on your door?
0: first record label person that came to see us was somebody from Amherst, and they flew out, and I think that was in 1985. We, introduced, we did a second uh, recording, a second independent album in 1985 but before that time they came out and saw us and I mean Robert Hodgins he actually drove out to Calgary to hang out with us and sort of act as a uh, as a manager at that time and I remember we were super pumped and excited and we went to start playing and we played and then we finished our set and I said to Robert well what did the guy think you know he goes well He laughed after the second song. (laughs) (laughs) No way. It didn't really matter because there was a steady stream of these A&R guys that came out to see us. So people came from Capitol Records to see us and people came from Warners and a bunch of the other labels. And then we ended up hooking up just through a bunch of circumstance. We had One of the places we had sent our album to was a place called The Agency in Toronto. And that was sort of the big booking agency in Canada at the time. And a guy named Ed Smeal was there, and Ed passed it on to a guy named Fraser Hill, who was an independent producer. And a guy named Rick Hot were a producing team. They Fraser heard the record, really loved the band, liked what was going on, and wanted to produce us. So he got a hold of Robert, who got a hold of us. And we got it, we talked to Fraser, and, and Fraser said, Well, you know, I want to come out and work, see what the band's about and, and work with it. So right about that time was when we were releasing our second indie album, seen in North America, and by that time the band was three of us, there was myself and Merle and Brian with hired gun drummers. So I remember, so Fraser actually flew out on his own dime to Saskatoon. Fraser knew that this showcase was going to happen, and he also knew that there was a guy really interested, Doug Chappelle from Virgin Records. So Fraser came out and we I remember we were in my at my folks' house in their garage, which now I go, wow, that must have been kind of loud and irritating for the neighbors because it wasn't exactly soundproof, but, <laughs> but we rehearsed there, man, a lot. Like we were but we were also we were always a big rehearsal band. We we practiced a lot. We 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 really worked at it. And uh you know, I think why we kinda got better than a lot of the other bands, just because we got tighter and we worked at I learned you learn tricks from people. I remember talking to John Donnelly for the Queen City Kids and and they were they were a super tight band that I used to see playing down at a place called the A4 all the time. I mean, in fact, I bought a bass, a Fury bass off John. But <laughs> I was a big fan. Yeah, I remember getting to know John and saying and asking him, well, how do you guys, because Jeff was the drummer in that band, I said, how do you guys get so tight? He said, we practice on our own, just bass and drums all the time. So we know exactly what each other's doing all the time. And yeah. it was a trick that I learned. So Donnie and I ended up practicing a lot on our own. And then all of a sudden, you do a lot of this, and then the other two guys get added into the mix, and they go, holy shit, you guys, are! what's going on? It just elevated the tightness of the band. So anyway, Fraser was out there for about a week. We did this showcase, and Doug Chappelle from Virgin flew out for the showcase, and Donnie was playing drums with us at that time. And uh, and Doug saw us playing and was blown away by the band. He just loved it, loved the band. And so he came to actually see us set. Because Fraser had said, don't, don't expect him to talk to you or anything. We were nervous. We, but by then, I must say, by then we'd played a lot of gigs. And we were also, uh, we'd also had the experience of having lots of A&R people come to see us. So we were kind of used to rejection to a certain extent.
2: Well, they weren't all, <laughs> yeah.
0: But we played a good set. Doug liked us. He talked to us afterwards. And he was a really cool guy, nicest guy in the world. And, uh, and he had been at Island Records before that. And then before that, he had been at A&M. And, uh, anyway, he's just a really cool guy. So he was really, he was interested in us and he started following the band essentially. And so Fraser at this point thought, okay, well, this is, this is a serious band. So he started working with Ed Smeal. Ed was from the agency. They eventually became our managers called Mighty Music Management. And over the course of the next, I guess, the the next year from the fall of 85 to the fall of 86, we started being booked through the agency and toured right across the country as an original band playing the odd cover. That's what we became. Our second EP came out. We did the same thing with that. We mailed it out everywhere and it, it was even more successful. Like it did really well seen in North America and, and it started getting played even on commercial stations, which was really a cool thing. So over the course of that year, Donnie ended up, we had a different drummer. Donnie was not able to play full-time with us. We had a drummer named Doug Lashinsky, and Doug played a lot of gigs with us, including lots of gigs in Toronto and right across the country. But we always knew we wanted Donnie, and, and he became available in the spring of 86. He basically went through a divorce, and we replaced Doug with Don. And then we knew we had the right combo it was just really clicking. Everything was just really clicking really well. All this added up to the point where Doug kept following the band and he finally got to the point where we offered us a record deal. And that happened in the fall of 1986. But anyway, the negotiation of that deal took about three months. And during that time, we actually went back to Saskatoon. And remember, we played a gig. It was funny because it was the only gig we ever played at where nobody came. And it was in Saskatoon, and it was a weekend. It was a three-nighter, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. There were a couple of girls that we knew that were waitresses, and, and they came down to the gig. But they were the only ones there. There was Al Vicarious. I remember Al was mixing it. Was mixing and doing lights. Yeah. So there was Al, and then and I remember it was Dana. And I can't remember the other girl that was there. That was the last gig in Saskatoon before we signed <laughs> our record deal. It was a gig for nobody at all. It's kind of ironic. So we ended up signing the deal at the Copa right before Christmas of '86, <laughs> and it took forever. We were really late getting the stage because it's like this thick of you know you got to initial every page and all this stuff, and it was unbelievable. Yeah, so Stephen Stone was our lawyer then. I mean, we signed the signed the record deal. We were all super pumped and happy, and Doug was super happy to sign us. And and so we came back to Toronto right after New Year's and started working on our first album for Virgin, which was Big Blue Sky, and that was. Originally, we started in, that was with Rick Hutt and Fraser Hill, Fraser and Rick as the producers. We had tried, we had tried to get Mitch to produce, you know, he, he had tried and we had tried and then it just, it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen uh, and the label really wanted somebody who'd had more experience and I know Rick and, and Fraser had worked with a lot of different people including uh, Tom Cochran and Red Ryder and, and I think that was a, a big part of it. Uh, you know Doug's interest in having Fraser and Rick work on the record with us. So we started in Toronto and that took us, I guess, two and a half months. We started at a studio called Metalworks, but we were double booked. And after the first few days, they switched us to the night shift. So we started at eight at night, went till eight in the morning oh, after- oh,
2: Glamorous. Yeah.
1: Oh God, what, <laughs> was peak, I think they're called peak creative hours, right? No. That, <laughs> well, <laughs> after about,
0: how long? I don't know, She's about three weeks. We weren't getting nearly as much done as we wanted to, and we just—it became yeah. apparent that we were, would have been way better working during the day, or at least not starting at la- that late anyway.
2: You know. Yeah, yeah,
0: so, yeah. So we switched from Metalworks, and we ended up going to five other studios. I think one of them included was Grand Avenue Studios in Hamilton, which was owned by the Lanois brothers, Bob and Daniel Lanois. and. So Bob would come around, he was kind of like a mad scientist recording engineer guy. And Dan, Daniel, his brother, who became super famous as mega producer, and, and oh, yeah. songwriter and recording artist as well. Uh, the, uh, Dan had moved on by then, but the, yeah, we did a bunch, we recorded a bunch of different studios, ended up finishing the record in the middle of March, and at McClear Place Studios, that was the last place that we worked at there, which was famous for doing a lot of big records, including a lot of Rush records. Rush worked there a lot. And in fact, yes had done had worked there not that long before we were there. I'm trying to remember that record, but it was interesting because I said, "Well, what was it like having yes?" The, the assistant engineers in recording studios are the are the gold mines of information that you'll get because they're the ones who really, really they're there all the time and they know what's going on and they know who's cool and who's not. But
3: anyway, yeah, <laughs> really, yes.
0: When they set up, they had they brought in trees like they, they the studio area was turned into kind of like a forest within the studio <laughs> area. So you look, it was old school. Recording studio with like glass, you know, and it's like this forest of people. Like you know, I thought that was kind of a cool idea. But. Yeah, so it's uh, big blue sky. That record came out. First of all, there was a single. First single was Teen Land. Came out in May of uh, of eighty seven. And the the day the single was released, and it was a vinyl forty five. Vinyl forty five. This is you know well before cell phones and everything. Else. Yeah. Uh, part the thing, hop in the truck, (laughs) drive in, phoned, you know, the people at Virgin Records from the phone in the clubhouse or whatever. And I talked to, I think it was Laura Bartlett from Virgin Records. And she said, well, you know what? I think we sent each of you guys two singles, right? And I said, yeah. She said, well, what you need to do is, uh, there's been an error made and there were two stations. What they would do at that time is they would send all the singles out by courier. So they would all arrive at the same date, to all the stations in Canada so that no one would feel slighted. Nothing was, everybody got it the same. They could all get it together if it was going to get added and all that kind of thing. Anyway, the two stations that they'd missed were station Saskatoon and Regina somehow. (laughs) So they, she knew that I had two singles and that had been sent to me. So, she said, we've got you a plane ticket. You've got to fly to Regina, take it to, I think it was Z-99 was the station there. Take it to Z-99 and, and then take it to, I think it was maybe 102 Rock. I, I don't remember the, the name of it at that time. But it was yeah, Rock in yeah. Saskatoon at that time.
3: So I had just
0: enough time to run home, grab the signals, change <laughs> my planes, get on the airplane. And it was a prop plane flying, flying from Saskatoon to Regina. It was super windy that day. That was one of the roughest rides i've had and it seemed like we were about 20 feet above the ground <laughs> and the wind just blowing this plane around thinking we are gonna crap anyway got to regina took a cab to the radio station dropped off the single took the cab back took the plane back to saskatoon dropped it off to the radio station there and then went back and finished the cutting that i had to do that day
2: hey i just i saw on social media here that you had, did you because we know we lost little Richard here. You did you, you shared an elevator with him one time.
0: We flew down to L.A. to play a place called Club Lingerie, and the hotel we were staying at. We were going down to the gig. <laughs> I, I went from my room and I the elevator doors open. I'm going down to the lobby. Picked up with the the band, and I get in the elevator, and there's little Richard, and he's he's there with either his manager or tour manager. Little Richard is not little. He's very tall. He was like, <laughs> like tall. Oh, a few inches taller than me. I'd say he's, I don't know, 6'3 three or six four, like a tall guy and very just you know you can't miss like the guy. That, yeah. And he wasn't really going <laughs> to do because he, he kind of was made up. Like he kind of had a you know kind of a flashy suit and makeup and, and stuff. And and uh, when when I got in the elevator, I said,
2: like, "Oh hi."
0: He was like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you know, he was just friendly. That there was really no conversation other than. I was acutely aware that I was riding down in the elevator with little Richard and his. And I was like, uh, and then I got out of the elevator, and I, one of the guys, I think it was Merle, saw me walk out of the elevator, and he goes, "Little Richard." You know, little Richard, I go, "Yeah, yeah." And he goes, "What? Well, Richard's just staying here?" He was like, you know, totally,
2: totally freaked out. It was, it was,
0: yeah, you know, I can tell. You know, it's interesting when you get in those situations. There's been a few situations where I've been around people that were of well known that they're going to a gig you're going to a gig and you kind of just sort of, hey how you doing like you're just both on your way to work kind of thing remember that was with yeah. Joan Baez you know one of my childhood you know heroes to a certain extent my mother was a huge fan of Joan Baez played all her music around that and she was standing in line for the cabs at the lobby of the Mondrian Hotel in LA another time when we were down there and uh, and I remember she looked at me and she just kind of smiled and she winked. She winked at me and I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> the by Baez yeah, wink. No, it <laughs> that was good. was yeah. Yeah, my encounter with Little Richard. Yeah, no, I guess Big Blue Sky, you know, getting back to that chronological thing, Big Blue Sky, We, Kingland became a hit, did really well in Canada. The first single released in the USA was, uh, was Things I Do for Money and we did a tour with, four, with three other bands. It was called Four Play. It was sponsored by Coors. You know, the Four Play Tour, just to give you a quick overview of it, there was four bands. There was Will and the Kill. It was Will Sexton, Charlie Sexton's younger brother. And they were from Austin. Uh, and there was uh, Royal Court of China, a band from Nashville. And that, that's who we shared a bus with. We shared a tour bus. Our crew and our band shared a bus with their crew and their band. And the other, the Will, Will and the Kill were sharing uh, with a band from Newcastle, England, called Hurrah. As the tour went on, it, things got kind of weird because Things I Do for Money ended up getting a lot of play in the U.S. And it got to be, it got up to like number 30 in the Billboard album rock tracks. And the the video got played on MTV and high for eight weeks. And But the other three bands weren't getting any airplay and nothing was going on. So there, there was a little bit of a... Uh, Envy and 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 some minor sabotage going on there as a result of that. Oh yeah. We were shortly after that tour. We were booked to do another tour in the U.S. starting in January, opening for the Kinks, and we were supposed to go from coast to coast, and they were playing a wide variety of shows. It was going to be oh a wow, shows, a lot of sort of medium to small. How theater. cool is that?
2: Yeah we were very oh. really excited about
0: that. And then that, uh, but when it, the uh, Ray and Dave Davies, their, their mother died just shortly before the tour started. And uh, so they blew out the tour. They, they, oh, man. they decided to blow out the tour. So what we did is our agent kind of scrambled to get us uh, out there to play. So we, we set up a van tour. <laughs> so we were, which was different than you know. The nice thing when you go out as an opening act for a bigger band is, first of all, you got a bunch of people there already, and second of all, you look you look pretty good because you're on a on a big stage, and you you do a short set. It's usually thirty, forty, forty five at the longest. So you play all your best stuff. You go out, and rock them, sock them, knock them dead, and away you go. It's 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 a great way. And then you go out and maybe sell some merchandise or whatever you do. Secrets of the Alibi, which was their second record. Bearsville Studios is in, uh, just outside of Woodstock, New York. Very famous because uh, Bob Dylan and the band did a lot of recording there. Tons of people did, did a lot of great records at Bearsville. It was, uh, it was, it was a great place to record. It was, it was big. We did the first half of the record of Secrets of the Alibi there, and then we went up to uh, Quebec, and we went to Le Studio, uh, which is, was in the Laurentian Mountains north of Montreal, and that was a place that was well-known. Rush did a lot of records there as well. The producer for, for Keith Richards took, took the, the big, you know, all the studios at that time in the 80s and 90s had these, you'd have usually three sets of speakers. You'd have the little oratones, and then you'd have like the Yamaha NS-10s, and then there would be gigantic speakers in, embedded into the wall built in. And sometimes they were yeah. like, tech or who knew, JBLs, or you know, they are big. So, anyway, apparently, what Don Smith, who was recording with Keith, did, he, he got them taken out. They got the, the assistants to take them out of their set right on the top of the console. So, you've got to make a. <laughs> from Paul said that when he was working on the sessions, he had earplugs in his ears and headphones over top of the ear. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so incredibly loud in there. It's just banging loud. We finished that record, ended up touring across Canada, went once again down to the States. We did a tour opening for, oh God, we did so many tours down there. One was for uh, Dread Zeppelin. Remember the band Dread Zeppelin?
2: Yeah, I yep. do. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <album from> <laughs> awesome. And then we also did another tour opening for Robert Palmer with his band down there. And yeah. anyway, that album finished. And then we went off to do snow in June. And that was, uh, kind of the, the, the big, that was the third record for the Pikes. And it was going to be, that was, there was a lot of uh, money invested into making that record. We went back to Bearsville studios in upstate New York and we started in August, I guess we were in the rehearsal barn for a few weeks and then moved our way up to the, uh, up to the main studio, they had two studios in Beersville. One was the tracking studio, and they had an old Neve console that had been owned by Pete Townsend, and it was sort of famous. And it had he had had it in his home studio, I think. And the, I think the Who actually officially had owned it, but but it was an old Neve console, and they were very known for their you know the warm transformers and getting a really nice warm sound out of them.
2: And that was oh, yeah,
0: part of yeah. working there. It was really, really a nice sounding console. And the room was big. You had lots of space. The control room wasn't that big, but the, the recording area was really big. It was like a, kind of like a small gymnasium, like a pretty good size. But mm-hmm. next door in the same building, in the same building was the mix studio. And they kind of built this mix studio to the specs of Bob Clearmountain because Bob Clearmountain who uh, is a well-known engineer and producer?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: He uh, he had a house in Wood in Woodstock or just outside of Woodstock, and he loved. He lived in New York City, but he would come up there to work a lot of the time because it was nice. You're up in kind of the kind of the Appalachians. It was mountains and, yep. and a pretty <coughs> area up there. So Bob would come up and work all the time, and so they kind of he basically advised him as to what he wanted with the room. And it was a nice room. It had a humidifier in it. It just was a very comfortable room for mixing. And so the nice thing about Bob working there is we, we ended up crossing paths with him and, and getting to know him a little bit. And our, our producers, Rick and Fraser got to know him a little bit and we had wanted to have some other people mixing on the way. And we had already lined up through, uh, Doug Chappelle had lined up Hugh to to do mixes for some of the songs so we started recording in in really we started working there in late august and just before christmas mid-december we were set up to go to have you pageant mix five of the songs at at a&m studios in la so they flew brian and myself and rick and fraser out to la for the mix sessions so brian and i stayed together there and it was really interesting being just in these different studios and working with some of these different people. I mean, A&M was really a hub of, of recording activity in, in LA. It had, I think, I think it had eight or 10 studios in all. Um, We were in one of the smaller kind of mixed studios, but the next record we did after that, we went back to A&M and we ended up uh, working in the big studio to do tracking for a couple of weeks. But Hugh was really good, and he and I was a big. Fan. We were big fans of Hugh and Bob. They were both superstar producer mixer guys. And Hugh had he was he had mixed a lot of great records that we we knew. Like he he had worked on a, a number of XTC records and records with the Police and records with Genesis and Phil Collins and Hall and, Oak and many other people. He was just a really formidable producer, and I remember we one of the sessions we were there. After a mixed day, and we, we went to this place called Barney's Beanery. We would go there every night and have a couple of—not every night, but almost every night—we were there to have a couple of drinks and to have a bite to eat or something, you know, late at night when we were finished. <laughs> I remember and then, in one of the days we were there, Hugh had uh, a song that went to number one, and it was the song was "Another Day in Paradise." Phil Collins, another bit, another day, in yeah, Paradise, number one, yeah, and huge, uh, huge hit. Yeah. And so, and it was interesting because we, we were all sitting there, it was Fraser, Rick and Brian and I and you. And Fraser said, well, so what's, that's congratulations. You went to number one. So is that your first number one? And you said, well, no, I've had other ones. And Fraser was kind of like, well, what other ones you had? <laughs> 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 said, well, well, actually, I think it was, I think that was the 10th number one I've had. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So he started giving them off, and I mean, we're talking like, I don't even know, but he, he'd worked on Sting records and Police Records, and he, he talked a little bit about those albums and had some interesting stories about them. And I remember at the time, he had, he one of the albums he was the most proud of was Synchronicity from the Police that he'd worked on, oh. although he had an ancient memory saying that he had really enjoyed working with XTC. And he said, we reminded him a little bit of XTC because we were from kind of a smaller town, like, like XTC had been. And, and, you know, we were kind of a little bit of a quirky band. And, uh, and he said, one of the most fun sessions at the time was working on a, an album called English settlement, which is a great album from XTC. And, uh. and I love that. I, I love that album. That's a really interesting. And, and at the time it was sonically just stood head head and shoulders above above most other records but i mean he did stuff like you know he did he mixed man eater and many other big big songs along the way he did in the air tonight i mean you know it was really an interesting experience to be there at a&m and i remember one time chrissy hind was walking down the hall from the pretenders and and herb Alpert was the owner and uh one morning i was there noodling around in the studio and and I think he wanted to play his trumpet there or something because he walked in and and I think I was, I was still smoking this. I was like smoking, having a smoke and kind of playing the guitar. And, everything. and I think he walked in, and was like, oh, he sort of gave me a dirty look. Like, what are you doing smoking in? Here? <laughs> it was a nice thing when he smoked, you know? It was...
1: Yeah. My, I said my exposure to you wasn't through the Pikes. It was through Flora Vista was the first album that I heard. And because I was hanging out at Randy's, which we do, and, and he, he said he was recording that album, and I think maybe played me a couple of tracks that were that were pretty much finished or whatever, and it, it's something that, like that kind of folk, country, those types of styles are not something that I typically go for, usually, but some for me, it's all about a singer's voice, and I heard that voice coming, Then I'm gonna fanboy on you a little bit here, but hearing that voice coming through those monitors and with those songs, it grabbed me right away, and over the last sort of six years, I'd say, that album has become really, really important to me. And cool. there's a lot of songs on that album that are they're just so cool. And it sounds so good. I, keep, I always tell Randy this, too. It's one of the best albums that he's recorded because it's sonically, again, it's beautiful. Like, it's lush and it or it's stripped down and very, very clean when you're just playing acoustic. So I just wanted to talk to you about a couple of those songs or two or three of those songs, if that's okay.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, so there's obvi- the, the obvious sort of dichotomy of Junkie Pride and Clean and they are two sides to one coin. So I just wondered where where were you at in your life when you were writing those songs? Like what was going on that that was kind of obviously a very, very personal songs and very meaningful to you.
0: Well, <laughs> Junkie Pride was written in rehab. Okay. <laughs> I was at a treatment center in uh, I was at a treatment center in Quebec, and I was nor it was about an hour's drive somewhere north of montreal or outside of montreal and uh and they let me bring my guitar and so i noodled around i ended up playing kind of a mini concert there while i was there but i was there for 30 days and i and somebody just mentioned to me one day i think we're outside having a smoke because literally everybody smoked and i had quit smoking by then it's interesting but i remember before i went and before i was going to head out there my but my mother brought me a, a carton of Demorier cigarettes <laughs> and, and she sort of said uh you know you may want these for some reason or another I think, I think she thought it was kind of like going to jail and in some ways, <laughs> yeah
1: yeah
2: <laughs> you got to try you know sell
0: <laughs> yeah, i don't know but anyway the uh, but I, you know i ended up smoking you know and i would, like you say you smoked you know and, and yeah. plus you know you went to you know I was going through you know obviously a lot of stressful things and then uh, and that was just me noodling around on the guitar and f- trying to figure out, you know lyrically somebody said to me one day somebody was walking around and and sometimes people still have a bravado and they almost w- would tend to kind of encounter this quite a bit there actually when I was in the treatment center people would have a kind of a uh, almost like a pride a, a bragging about look how messed up i was and look at the things i did yeah. and you could you trade war stories essentially is what you're doing right and, and so i just heard that phrase junky pride and i thought that's a pretty good that's a pretty good uh, pretty good phrase there because that's kind of what that is that's exactly yeah. what it that's why we're all here <laughs> that's why we're we're in this place you know because We're obviously addicts and we have something we've got to deal with. And and our pride is a big part of maybe what got us there. And sometimes you just want to be, you know, you just want to be left alone. The lyrics in there, I just want to play my guitar. I just want to, I just want to see you like you really are. And that's, that could be looking at somebody else or somebody else looking at me. That's really where that song came in. And the recording of that, you know, I, I just like the unusual chord pattern going on and then, I'd always wanted to do, see, the thing is, it was great the when I did my solo records is I, when I do my solo records is I get to do stuff that I, I wouldn't necessarily do with the Northern Pikes, you know, because yeah. when you're in a band, you're, you're trading four ways, you're trading your ideas four ways and, and trying to uh, try to work things out as a group. And when you're on your own, you're kind of like, well, it's intimidating, but at the same time, there's this real sense of freedom in, involved with that. I, I don't really have to, necessarily get anybody else's approval or you know make you know but I, I really trust randy and we've worked together for a while now and uh yeah, it just connects it just works really well we have such a natural way of working together and in the middle part i just thought let's do a guitar let's do a guitar solo here man let's just let this go for a while and so i had the idea of kind of the dueling guitar thing and i mean randy's yeah. really shred he's like a, he's a true lead guitar player I'm really not. I'm more of a, kind of like a little bit more of a a bass player who plays the guitar, but I can, I can can noodle around and find my way around and, and I can, I seem to be able to find the right notes sometimes anyway, for some reason. So, so we just, we did that very quickly. He's, he sort of put down a part and I kind of played around it. We had to stop and start a couple of times because I overlapped the notes and I think he fixed one spot that I kind of messed up, but. You know, making records, you, I kind of sometimes you forget the journey as you're going along. I mean, Randy would remember a lot of it probably better because he's the guy, he's the guy at the console and he's the guy, you know, getting the stuff recorded and mixing the stuff. So, yeah, clean was the flip side of that. That was another one. That was one that written, I guess. See, Junkie Pride was written in 2006. That was the, that was October, November 2006 when I was the first treatment center I was in. And,
1: well, that was a long time before you recorded that then. That was that's quite yeah, the gap between I just, felt, I
0: just never felt comfortable about I just I wasn't yeah. that comfortable talking about that stuff in public at that time. You know, I I eventually yeah. eventually became more comfortable about it. And now I really don't mind talking about it at all. And in fact, lots of people have mentioned to me I'm that they're glad that I talk about it because it's it makes them feel uh feel better about it and that they can they can talk about it and it's you know the positive things can come from that from sharing your experiences that mm-hmm. I have found. Yeah, uh, absolutely for sure. But clean was done actually a few years later. That was done having been clean for a while and it was just me sitting there going, hmm, you know, here I'm looking out the window. Huh, kitchen table full of receipts and papers, which is exactly what yeah, yeah, yeah. my table is here <laughs> right now. I'm trying to do tax stuff right now. So but the uh <laughs> a few weeds in the old backyard in the house I was living in at the time. And uh yeah, just had a straight ahead. Sure feels good to be clean. It was a good it's just feeling feeling good about where things were at, you know. And uh one thing it's it's always interesting and I really love the uh the pedal steel there. I mean, Warren Rutherford has played pedal steel on on many of my many of my records along the way and he, he really shined in that one. You know, there's certain yeah. certain songs that Warren really came through and added a really, really nice character to. So
2: Jay, one thing that uh, Kevin has always pointed out, which I think is such a great compliment, is like, the clean is definitely, it's definitely a country sounding song with the steel. Uh, but like Kev always says, is you know a lot of the country guys have that twang, like they're trying to all pretend they're from Alabama, but you just sing like like you sing, and it makes the whole thing feel so much more legitimate and so much more authentic and. Which we've been 100%. talking about quite a bit in this in this podcast so far is about authenticity, and I think that's where that really shines, you know? Northern Pikes
0: broke up in 1993. We did our fourth record, Neptune, and then we did a record, a live record called Gig that we recorded in Toronto and Montreal. And and then we broke up. We played a couple more gigs after that, and, and now we call it a hiatus because we got back together you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Later, about
0: seven years later, but but at the time, there were no plans to regroup or anything. We were just, you know, going our separate ways. And part of the deal with breaking up and still being signed and still owing, at, owing music actually, you know, records to Virgin Records was mm-hmm. uh, they gave a, a you know, a modest amount of money to each of us, if we wanted it, to record some demos and if they liked what was going on they would sign us to to the label to virgin records yeah well when i did the demos i was uh i i just thought man i I really i really like the fact that i can do whatever i want now so i i added mandolin and i added pedal steel and i you know i wasn't afraid to to use some of these roots ear type instruments you know and a lot of acoustic guitar and that kind of thing yeah And uh, that was for the Mouse album. So I I did, that album came about because we did the the demos for, you know, these demos that became part of that. I did five songs and then, and I kind of liked what was going on, but I I was running out of money. So I I basically got a hold of other musicians and then we we went in as a band and cut the songs live off the floor. That record came out and and that was really the thing that, and after that I just thought, you know what, I really love Steel. I've always loved Steel. I've always had a soft spot since yeah. we got introduced to the first wave of alternative country music as a kid, as a teenager, I remember at holiday park golf course, and the, uh, the guy who was working as the maintenance janitor guy for the summer was a guy named Ken Burkell, And he was a huge music fan and he was a few years older than me. And I think I was about 14 at the time. And I think Ken was about 19 and I were talking with him about music all the time. He loved country music. And I, I was kind of like, country music i don't know whether i you know and he said well here listen to this 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 and he gave you some artists to listen to including the eagles before they were really all that well known in poco and commander cody and his lost planet airmen and the flying burrito brothers and graham parsons and music that was new writers of the purple sage you know a bunch of different artists that were interesting and outside the mainstream of of what was happening at that time and it so I've always kind of had a soft spot for for those things, and I I know I sing with a little bit of a twang, and I always kind of have, but I've never really tried to to go too twang because I I just feel like you know I I kind of have to be myself. The thing I found yeah. early,
2: I don't think you have a twang, Jay. No, I don't think so. No. I don't think you have a twang.
0: No, it's it's certainly not an exaggerated twang, but I just I, I just try and write good songs, and some of them are kind of more what you call country songs, but I just try and sing kind of like myself. And the one thing I learned with the Northern Pikes, and that's one thing that I, I think really helped me in my music career overall, I, I came to realization after having been in a band, been in bands since my mid-teens, and I got to be 23 years old, and the Northern Pikes were starting, and I thought, I... I, I I had previously been in bands where we tried to keep up with trends, whatever was currently happening. And if you try and chase a trend, the thing I realize you'll never catch up. You'll never, by the yeah. time you catch up, there's something else going. So be yourself. The most important thing of all is just try and be yourself and have your own personality within what you're doing. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, well, at least you're being true to yourself, you know, in terms of your yeah. sound and, and your, uh, you know, your style. And, and I've tried to kind of do that ever since, you know, I, I've, I've obviously I've written music for lots of movies and films and things like that and TV shows where, where they want you to have it sound a certain way. And when you do, then you adapt to what that is. Cause when you're writing for yeah. film, you're there to enhance the producer and the, creator director you know you're there for the producer you're you're there to enhance their vision
2: that's one thing you and i have talked about jay is when when you're writing music for a corporate video or whatever you're not writing for yourself you're writing for somebody else right so
1: exactly
2: you're you're you know you're you're hired on and you're you're hired to do a job and
0: and you're within the context of that there's nothing wrong with being creative or original and trying to Mm-hmm. trying to get some really interesting music, and I learned that when I worked on do South and I worked in that TV series, my boss was Paul Haggis, who was a very extremely intelligent guy and and just probably the smartest guy I think I've ever worked with and and he had a very sometimes very subtle way of telling you things and other times not so subtle <laughs> just
3: depending <laughs> on depending
0: on what the situation was but he was he was really really smart but he you know I think Paul liked what I originally was doing he liked my rough around the edges strummy acoustic type thing and the yeah. fact that I like to, you know I'd play the harmonica and I'd play the acoustic and I'd doodle away with things and do my you know whatever I could and and that gave it some character some original character and he was he was looking for that and I and I learned from that and I I sort of thought well and it, that's why you know in subsequent film projects that I've worked on sometimes I mean, I've done things that have been, you know, uh, semi-orchestral. I mean, i worked on stuff with Ross, with Ross Nicaforek. I've worked on stuff with Randy. And, I mean, and with other people, too. And, I mean, the reality of that whole situation is that if you can inject some of your own personality into into uh, the director or the producer or creator's vision, you're going to find something kind of interesting and a little out of the mainstream. And there have been situations where I haven't really, where I didn't do that. I just basically said, okay, they seem to really know what they want. And so I'll just kind of follow direction completely. And when I've done that, I haven't been really that happy with the end results of it. It's been one of those things where I kind of went back and go, geez, I wish I would have really fought for something a little more here. And but, it, you know, you learn from experience and every project's different, whether you're making a record or whether you're working on music for a film or or any other purpose. I mean, it's just there's always going to be situations that you just have to adapt to accordingly. And-
2: In today's world, we have we have Pro Tools and we because now more more music is made with, uh, you know, with the uh, 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 just with the MacBook Pro and. And, uh, you know, everything in the box and less people are playing guitar and and, and everything, you know, instead of getting an electric guitar, a Strat and a a loud amp, you get a MacBook and and Ableton Live. So that's the question. Is rock and roll dead or not?
0: No, (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think at all. I think I think what's going to happen, especially since we're in this period of of not having live music at the moment. Not having, you know, not having a lot of the, uh, the excitement that happens with that. I think when it does come back, and I think it's going to come back, it's going to be stronger than ever because I think there's going to be such a craving for, for that. You know, there's nothing, there's an excitement. I, I think back to the, you know, some of the first rock bands I ever heard in concert and they were that was a school dance Greystone heights school when i was like in grade seven or grade you know and then in grade eight playing with my little band you know half hour
1: before
0: the the other you know the the other music happened at the dance and and there's just yeah. when it when a live band acts, you're, you're going to have kids and what's going to happen is there's going to be kids that are going to have a little bit of a time frame when they haven't really been exposed to this, and they haven't really been, yeah. and all of a sudden they're going to get in a situation where they're going to go, they're going to go to a concert and they haven't been to one, and they haven't, or they haven't seen one for a long time, with electric guitars and drums and bass and and that excitement that happens, and it's going to be like, holy smokes, what is this? This is amazing. Yeah. I think you're going to have an amazing cascade of of live rock and roll bands, I think, is going to happen. You're going to see that, I think, in about within the next oh, year to two years. That's that's my prediction. Whether I'm right or not, I don't know. But I do feel bad at the moment for, you know, for people, young artists that are trying to release albums and, you know, even us. I mean, the Northern Pikes, we're sort of in midstream of working on on a, a an album that's going to have, you know, a, a, it's going to be a new album, but it's it's going to have some a fair amount of stuff really from our Snow in June record, kind of re re reworked as as acoustic type recordings. Okay. But you know, we've kind of stopped in midstream, and we'll 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 resume when you know when it's time to do that. But I mean, there's a. We've we, We're not going to put it out until we can go out and play live because that's, that's what we do. We're a live band. Yeah, you know we had a our band had a call about a week ago, and it's like, well, that's always been our major source of promotion as we we record a record, and then we go out and tour and promote it. You play live, and that people see the excitement of the band live and, and enjoy that and hopefully get you know interested in the new music from there. It's just a natural thing that occurs.
1: so we always finish, Jay, with um, we have 10 quick fire questions okay um so but it's quick fire as in there's short encapsulated questions if you want to talk about them that's fine too so number one the age-old question rolling stones or the beatles
0: oh god <laughs> you know they're each so amazing in their own way i'd have to say 50 50 on that
1: no, I- no i'm not gonna pick one okay okay <laughs> Okay, what is the favorite thing in your closet right now? What's your favorite thing in your closet?
0: Well, let's go take a look here. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: the first time a guest has actually gone to their closet. This is awesome.
2: (laughs) 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 He's getting changed. Oh there you go. Nice. I like it. yeah. it's
0: a different colored kind of shirt. And I like it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <Awesome>. Bravo.
1: <laughs> okay, number three. What song do you wish you had written? Stairway to Heaven. Nice. Okay, then the <laughs> nice. counterpoint to that. What sing do you what song do you wish you hadn't written? Do I wish I hadn't <laughs> is one. one. That you hadn't written, yeah. Oh, if there are any.
0: Side of Regine, which is called I've Been Inside. It was the first, one of the first songs. Well, I would say, yeah, it was one of the first songs I ever wrote. And it's just, uh, the melody is kind of okay. It's just just kind of cheesy. So,
1: yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. If you want to find it, it's the B side of Ray, Regine, which was the, the Idols single that came out in 1980.
1: We'll definitely be looking <laughs> okay, it up for all sure. Right, all right. <laughs> okay. Sandals or flip flops? Flip flops. Flip flops. Excellent. Me too. Um, best piece of advice you've received from a musician? One of
0: the one of the things I'd have to say is John Donnelly from the Queen City Kids, uh, telling me about if you want to be a tight rhythm section just rehearse with the bass and the drums and do lots of it and stay stay at it and you'll get way 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 tighter that's that's one of yeah. the best and that really helped me a lot that really did because it's you know it just opened up that whole tightness factor there's just an unknown I can't even describe it you just know when you lock you know as a bass player yeah you lock with a drummer man it's just it feels good there's there's that warm fuzzy that goes
1: through you it's cool and it's important to have a tight rhythm section too it's not just the lead guitarist and the singers who get all the glory <laughs> um, what's your favourite drink right now what's your favourite thing to drink
3: oh
0: favourite drink mango
1: orange juice or maybe oh, it's wow. orange mango
0: juice what are they together and you know what? why because it reminds me of beat when I was a kid <laughs>
2: oh yes <laughs> it, was
0: beep. Beep. it was in the yellow container and it had a picture of like a little cartoon of a chick like a, a baby chicken on
1: there.
0: <laughs> yeah i do it reminds me of beep, beep so I, I like that taste yeah
1: awesome what's um the best artist or band that you've ever seen live
2: holy smokes
0: the police 1980 on the uh zenyana mondata tour and that was at the center of the arts in vagina.
1: Yeah, they Bucket. List. I mean, if they ever reformed, that would be a travel to any part of Canada to see those guys for me for sure. They were so good. Um,
0: I must say, there was just uh, it was there. It was a band just, just really rising, and there was a, a confidence level, but there was at the same time a youthfulness. You know, they hadn't yeah. become superstars, and the theater was, you know. Eighteen hundred seat theater, two thousand seat theater. So it was a great place. All the seats were great, and yeah, it was revved, man. It was a great show.
1: A killer cool. album, yeah. Okay, so we got two left for you. Um, number nine. Describe your teenage self in three words. Hmm.
0: Oh, shy, awkward, friendly. Those three. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> okay, and to wrap it up then, who would you most like to perform with, given the opportunity? And that can be anyone living or dead. Well, I'd have to say the Rolling Stones.
2: I was just going to say, Jay, yeah, give, well, Bill Wyman's not there anymore, but yeah, <laughs> push whoever's playing bass out. and just Give
0: me the set you list and I'll learn it and away we go here. You know. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> with our new Canadian bass player. That's right. <laughs> Everybody's looking for a gig
2: right now, so you know. <laughs> <Yep>. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Jay, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Oh, thanks guys, it was fun. I rambled on for
0: a couple hours here. Thanks a lot for your patience with me.
2: Hopefully, the listeners will will dig it, man. So, yeah.
0: Ooh, if you ever want to do another one, just let me know, and I'm happy. It's fun talking to you guys. It's you know because you're yeah, music guys, so it's fun. It's you can you can talk, you know.
2: Uh, thanks for listening music lovers uh we'll include links in the episode uh, notes to some of jay's music as well as some of the songs and bands we talked about today don't forget to check us out on instagram facebook and twitter at hfim podcast we post regularly to keep you enlightened and entertained to lead us out we'll let jay have the last word
3: A kitchen table full of old receipts and papers. A few new weeds saying hello in my backyard. A daily conversation with my maker. It Sure feels good to be clean. Been a few years now since i left the darkness still comes back to visit once in a while i'm still about 20 minutes late for everything i do it sure feels good to be clean guitars and microphones still fill up my my life Words and music Still put smiles On my face I finally Figured out How to run my own race And it sure feels good To be clean. Won't forget The past I use it now and then I see things different than I ever did before. I haven't given up on love, I just know now who my real friends are. And I thank God that I'm clean. The Guitars guitar. and microphones still fill up most of my life. Words Still put smiles on my face I finally figured out How to run my own race It sure feels good Buddy, when the demons try to dare me, I just laugh and say, man, you got the wrong guy. And it don't matter if it rains or if it shines, cause every day's a better day. Go and turn my face up To the big blue sky It sure feels good To be clean. Guitars and microphones Still fill up most of my life Words and music Still put smiles and tears All over my face I finally figured out Sure feels good to be clean. Yeah, sure feels good to be clean. Well, it sure feels good to be clean. Well, it sure, sure feels good.